absolutely legal. It's lovely that you can join us this morning, whether you're joining us uh, online, because uh, you're working from home like a lot of us, or in some little office or boardroom or Silks Cafe in person, very warm welcome to you. We want to uh, stand with you at this increasingly crazy time um, in our lives. Uh, my name's Peter Rench. The City Legal Community exists to consider the bigger questions of life with silks and suits in cities right around Australia. Uh, and uh, the format, if you're new, is a brief talk followed by a Q&A, which should be very interesting, in particular today. Uh, we're very privileged to have with us again, David Robertson, who's the national communicator with City Bible Forum. And he's gonna be speaking to us uh, in a couple of moments. If you do wanna ask a question at any time, you can text them to the, uh, to the number, which should be on the chat function or on the sheets in, uh, in front of your seats here. Um, or uh, you can use the chat function on the base of the Zoom screen if you'd like to do that from home. So um, David, I'm gonna hand over to you now. Thank you very much. Um, I've been looking forward to this with uh, great dread. <laughs> so um, the passage that we're going to look at is Romans 1 verses 18 to 32, which contains some of the most controversial verses in the whole Bible. Uh, I know somebody who was arrested for reading them in public, um, and they have them before you. I'm not actually going to read them purely and simply not because I fear being arrested, but because I want to look at the whole passage and that will take up some time. So if you're watching this and you don't have access, I would suggest that you find uh, Romans 1 verses 18 to 32. And uh, I do hope as well that there will be uh, questions and pushback on different things. Um, it's, I, I think this is amazing what this teaches because I think it's incredibly contemporary to our culture and context. But let me begin with someone who's not contemporary, and that is uh, St. Anthony, who you all know incredibly well. But he said this, I love this, a time is coming when men will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, you are mad, you are not like us. So uh, I, I, I feel kind of justified in that because often I've been accused of being mad. And so I just quote St. Anthony back. Um, now, just to summarize the passage, and then we're really looking at what happens when we reject uh, the law of God, when we reject God. Now, immediately, there are a whole bunch of questions that come in, and my view is that Paul is answering uh, these questions. We're lawyers, or most of us are lawyers, and we regard that law is fairly important. What if we reject the notion of law completely? So let's say in theory you're an anarchist, though in practice no one is an absolute anarchist. But if you reject the, the idea of law, then in effect you are creating a world where anarchy rules and where the strong and the powerful can overcome the weak. Law is incredibly important, but then where does law come from? And what Paul does here is he's writing into a context of a city where he says, that uh, if you reject law, you end up with anarchy, whose law are you going to have? Is it going to be Caesar's? Is it going to be religions? Is it going to be what? And he's saying it must be God's. Now in chapter two, he'll go on to talk about how God's law comes to us through scripture, but also is written on our hearts. And that's through conscience. And conscience is enormously important uh, in the understanding of law as well. But we're coming back to fundamentals here. 
So just to summarize this, and I realize there would be, there would be lots of questions and maybe pushback, feel free. Verses 18 to 21 tells us that uh, God makes himself known through uh, and, and his law known. So the big argument that many people have is they'll say things like, I would believe or I would accept this if only God would show himself. Now, what Paul does is he just simply says he does and he has done. And in two ways. First of all, he says, what may be known about God? This is very important. is plain to them. His eternal power and invisible. So he's, 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 he's arguing not that God is hidden, but that God is known. And he then says, another way God makes himself known is through his wrath, which is very uncomfortable reading, even for a lot of Christians. And he's saying, it's being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So what he's saying and what he goes on to expound, if you like, is saying, yes, what we've known about God is plain. Human beings reject that. Therefore, God reveals his, his anger at humans, humanity's injustice. Because verses 21 to 23 argue humanity rejects God and becomes foolish. So his first main point is just simply this. God does make himself known. There is a case for saying there are no real atheists in the world. Now, I actually think there are atheists in the world. There are people who intellectually reject the conception of God. But I would say that what the Bible describes them as is foolish, foolish in the sense of, of morally. In other words, there are people in the world who believe in a flat earth. They, they genuinely believe in a flat earth. Um, Paul is, in a sense, putting atheism in that same in that same category, which uh, I realize is probably not the offensive thing you thought you were going to hear, but can be incredibly uh, offensive for people. But he's saying that the evidence for God is so overwhelming that to reject it is itself an act of moral folly. Psalm 14, verse 1, which he quotes later on, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So, verses 21 to 23 then say, they know God, they reject God, they do not give thanks. And it's, in, it's, in, it's interesting, the thankfulness aspect in here. Humanity rejects God, humanity does not give thanks to God, and therefore, their thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts are darkened. Now, this is the complete polar reverse of where we're at in our culture today. So in our culture today, it is generally assumed the more intelligent you are, the less likely you are to believe in God. Only stupid people, only foolish people believe in God. The Bible reverses that completely and says that humanity rejects God and thus becomes foolish. Now, um, we were talking about newspapers just beforehand, and uh, I would say if you want uh, evidence of the the foolishness of humanity just go pick up your newspaper or better still go onto social media uh, and and see things there and a lot of it is absolutely just uh, you just think no can we get genuinely any more stupid and every week i think my wife is fed up with me saying this no it can't get we can't get any stupider and we we do get stupider so uh, i mean we could list just numerous i just the proof of these verses is shown every single day. Open your eyes and you will see the folly of humanity. So they say they become foolish, their thinking becomes futile, their foolish hearts are darkened. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. And he talks about 
exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. We worship things that, that we make. So verses 24 to 27 are crucially important because they're saying, this is what happens when humanity does that. God makes himself known, humanity rejects God, and then God says, okay, and it's what I call the Burger King philosophy. Uh, God says, have it your way. You do it, okay? You, you make the rules, you run society, you do it. Human autonomy, the great idol of our culture. You do it, have your own way. And in verses 24 to 27, he talks about how being given over in that way leads to a, a destruction of one of God's greatest gifts, which is sex and, I wouldn't say sexuality, because sexuality as an identity is a late 19th century, 20th century uh, invention. I don't think that Paul would have put sexuality as an identity in the same way as many people do today. And it's interesting that this whole identitarian politics is tied, often tied in with this. But Paul says basically that when we give up on God's law, we end up degrading our bodies. Now, if you doubt that, I'm not going to ask you to look at this. I wouldn't put it as a, uh, as a, um, a video, as an illustration. But I will tell you this. There's a great fuss just now about what's called WAP. Um, and it's a video that's got hundreds of millions of views. So human beings love this stuff. It is overtly sexual, uh, uses racist language, although because it's a person of color using it, that's apparently okay. It is, it's just grotesquely uh, abusive. And yet people are going, this is empowering to women. But it's not. Uh, it takes someone like Russell Brand, who's not a Christian, to, to he, he got in so much trouble this week for saying, this is not empowering, this is enslaving. And Russell Brand is saying exactly what Paul says. What we thought was sexual liberation, um, one or two people who are in the room here and some of you watching this may be old enough, or you may even have been, you may remember, or you may even have been one of the late 1960s, you know, hippies, tune in, turn out, and so on, uh, drop out. Well, I, 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 I wasn't, I was five years old uh, when Woodstock was around, but um, I, I was, certainly as I grew older, I was very much attracted by it, it sounded great free love, liberation. The sexual revolution of the 1960s was supposed to bring empowerment, was supposed to bring liberty, and instead what it brought was more abuse, STDs, and just the mass confusion that exists in our culture today. And that is what Paul predicted here, and that's why this is so relevant. The degrading of their bodies with one another, because they worshipped and served created things. So God gives them over. And then verses 28 to 32, he talks about where this giving over ultimately ends. And it's very strong. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Who needs God? What's the point? So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. A depraved mind. A degenerate mind. Do you know, um, a while ago there was a, a bombing in Manchester, and you know we say human beings are wonderful. I just uh, had a, a, a little bit of an argument. It's quite a, a funny argument in one way between you have these influencers on Instagram, and there's this lady who's, of course, she's very good looking because it wouldn't work if she wasn't good looking, and you know she just tells you stuff like, 
I've fallen in love with myself and you need to fall in love with yourself. I'm saying, I look in a mirror, you want me to fall in love with that? No way. You know, I've, and I've got a, what about my character? You know, you've got to fall in love, you've got to be, it's so narcissistic. Now it's the very definition of narcissism. So when I accused her of being, of promoting narcissism, they, everyone piled in and said, be kind, you're not being very loving. And then they went on to say, you're a scumbag. You know, it wasn't very kind, it was very self-contradictory. But falling in love with yourself or humanity, you've got to love humanity. Well, yes, you do have to love humanity, but you have to recognize there are fa the faults. So the Manchester bombing, yeah, that was terrible. Then people say, but there's the one love concert that they had afterwards, they held with that. 10,000 people tried fraudulently to get tickets. Humanity's just screwed up. And there's no way that we can get around that. I, I can evidence that over and over and over. And this is because of the depraved mind. Paul uses the language here of a blacksmith who tests the red hot steel so as to approve or disapprove it for use. And he's saying the human mind, it's ironic that we say we are only going to believe something or do something if we can think it through. And Paul says, your mind's not capable. This is the great arrogance of atheism. And it's the great arrogance of humanity. We think we are the top of the evolutionary tree. We think we can work it out. And in reality, we're messed up. We're screwed up. Our minds can't get there. And our minds are much more fragile than we realize. Um, you know, there are some of us, and I include myself in this, who have a degree of arrogance and think we can think things through. And then there are others who can, I just can't work this out. It's a bit like, um, Humanity is a Sudoku puzzle, and it's one of the diabolical ones. Now, I'm struggling with the kids' one. And, and all of us, when we're trying to work out what's right and what's wrong and what's law and what's good and what's everything, there's a humanity that's quite disturbing in, in that regard. So what Paul is saying here is, the mind which rejects God does not think straight or rationally or morally and behaves so as to distort and destroy God's good order for relationships as originally created by him. Now, note what he's not saying. He's not saying that people cannot do good things or that in all times, at all places, they behave as badly as they possibly can. He is only saying that when society departs from this, from the creator's intention, this is what happens. John Stott retranslates this, if you like, to says that um, God gives them over to an unfit mind, and this leads not just to sexual immorality, but to a whole variety of antisocial practices which ought not to be done and which together describe the breakdown of human community as standards disappear and society disintegrates. That's what happens when a society rejects God's law. Now, obviously, time won't allow me to go into everything, but let me just point out something in the latter verses that's important. There are opposites, four general sins. There's wickedness and there's goodness. There's evil and there's good. There's greed and there's generosity. There's depravity and its opposite, which is wholeness. Depravity means hardened in a corrupt course of life by custom and habit. There are five sins that they are full of, all about human relationships, envy and honoring others, murder and life, strife and peace, deceit and honesty, malice and kindness. I've said this before, but it remains true that uh, what do I look for in, an, in a lawyer? I would look for somebody who's hardworking, who knows the law, but I also want them to be honest. It's like a mechanic or a doctor or, dare I say it, a clergyman. Uh, that's what we would look for. There are two gossip sins that are mentioned here. Gossips, the people who whisper behind doors. 
whereas the Bible talks about building others up. Slanderers, the people who stab in the back, whereas building others up. I, I read uh, a lot about Australian politics. There's a lot of gossip and there's a lot of slander. Um, and it's, it's, it's just sad. And we see that reflected in so many different ways. I remember once uh, sitting in a pub in Edinburgh in a place called Leith Walk, and it was, I lived on a street called Iona Street, uh, which was always uh, funny when I got into a taxi and said Iona Street, and the taxi driver said, you're wealthy. Uh, the old folks was incredibly witty. Um, but I would go, and Iona Street was a small street, but every corner had a pub. There were four pubs in this small street. And I remember going down one time and sitting in the pub, and somebody said to me, why do you go to the pub? I said, two reasons. got a big screen, because I watched the football, and just to remind me of human depravity. But the Bible is right. He said, what do you mean? I said, I just sit there and I listen. And I remember one time there were four uh, ladies who were, um, seemed really, really nice and all together. And this, this actually happened. Every time one of them got up to go to the toilet, the other three slammed them and gossiped about them. And, said, and then she'd come back and then the next one would get up and then those three would do exactly this. And I'm going, oh my goodness, this was just, and what they were talking about as well. Just, this was Romans 1. There are four sins of pride here. There's God-haters and God-lovers. There's the insolent, and uh, the word here is hybristis, which means one who behaves with humiliating and unconscionable arrogance to those who are not powerful enough to retaliate. Uh, and that, that, that's, you see that happening a lot. There's uh, humility uh, is the answer to that. There's the arrogant. Humility is the answer to that. There's the boastful. Humility is the answer to that. Two others mentioned here. They invent ways of doing evil instead of obeying God's ways of doing good. They disobey their parents. We are very invented, by the way, in doing evil. We honor our parents. There are four negatives, which I like in the English, reflecting the Greek, actually. The translation in the NIV is very good. They are senseless, they have no understanding. They are faithless, they have no fidelity. They are heartless, they have no love. They are ruthless, they have no mercy. And the answer to that is to understand, to have faith, to love, and to show mercy. So he's saying they're without brains, they're without honor, they're without love, or they're without pity. And all of this comes because of a rejection of God and the acceptance of false religion leading to all these things. People will say, that's not fair. That's not what I do. But being honest, Go through this list and you will see as I go through it that this is this is what I do. Uh, maybe not in every detail and maybe not as deep as it could be, but I do do it. And it's what our culture does. It's the way our culture is going. Some people would say this is a dark picture and Paul is exaggerating. But the Greek and Latin authors of the time were far more brutal about their own culture. Paul was telling the truth. When we try to tell people today, it's like my narcissistic friend saying, oh, how can you be so horrible about human beings? It's the truth. It's the reality. Within Greco-Roman society at that time, the majority were slaves. The class structure was inflexible. Infanticide was common. And the gladiators were just beginning. And that was slaughtering human beings for entertainment. So verse 32 says, this is sinning with knowledge. This is not sinning without knowledge. They know God's righteous decree. Just as they know God, they know his righteous decree. And he says, they, such things deserve death. And he is not talking about um, the death penalty as such. He's saying, people know God through his revelation, through creation, 
They know of his judgment through their conscience. The wages of sin is death. But perversely, they continue to practice the very thing that leads to that judgment. They boast, says Proverbs 2.14, they boast when they do evil and they encourage others to do the same. So let me, some, there's a lot in that, but let me just sum it up and then we'll go to some of the questions. Man has moved away from God and God has moved away from man. We are like the prodigal son in the far country. We are exploited and cruelly used. The greater the distance from God, the greater the dislocation in human relationships. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'll cite Calvin here. As they choose not to continue in the knowledge of God, which alone guides our minds to true wisdom, the Lord gave them a perverted mind which can choose nothing that is right. The wages of sin are death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The consequences of rejecting God and his law are eternally phenomenal, not just now. They are eternally phenomenal. And they are, those consequences are also played out in our culture and in our society. I leave you with this thought. The, uh, when you reject the root, you retain the fruit for a while, but the fruit will eventually die. And I will use an example of my own country, Scotland. I'll also use the example of Sweden. Sweden is deemed to be the utopian secularist paradise. Up until the year 2000, Sweden had a state church. 90% of the people at least nominally belonged to that church. Its foundation was unquestionably and its root was unquestionably Christian. It's a great country. The fruit of that still remains. I remember being in a working class area in Sweden and just amazed that the doors were left open. People walked in and around. Kids were very strongly family orientated. But what's happened, there's a book called Fishing in Utopia, not by a Christian, by a guy called Andrew Brown, a journalist, and saying Sweden is not the utopia that people think. And what's happened in Sweden over the past 10 years is that as it moves further away from its Christian roots, the fruit on is beginning to wither. And I think that that is what will happen here in Australia as well. All right, I'm going to leave it there. I've got loads of questions coming in on my phone as well. I'll go the phone ones first. And can I say with the questions, forgive me if uh, these are answered very quickly. You've got 20 minutes, got plenty of time. All right, okay. 20 minutes. Um, does it matter which religion? Yes, of course. Because it matters what's true and what's false. Anyone can invent a religion. Human beings always do that. We have a, a sense of God, so we reach up to God. And so does it matter uh, how we use our money? Yes. Does it matter how we use our bodies? Yes. Does it matter how we worship? Yes. In fact, in the Bible, it's very interesting. Those of you who are atheists will appreciate this. Uh, the Bible says very little about atheism and far more about false religion. So yes, it does matter. Uh, would more religion have made any improvement in dealing with COVID-19 in Australia? No, I doubt it. Um, I, I can't see any reason why. In fact, you could even argue that religious communities might make it worse because uh, we, you know, we tend to be nice to one another and commune together and so on, and maybe that helps spread things. But is there a basic paradox in law? I'm sure there is. Virtue is necessary to provide the motivation to obey laws and do good, and yet civil governments cannot inculcate that virtue. Uh, that's a really good point. The point is that law cannot bring what is not there. The purpose of law is to restrain what is there. And I would suggest you can encourage things. So, um, very interesting. 
let's just say for the sake of argument, and I'm not, I, I don't buy this argument, let's just say for the sake of argument that wearing a face mask prevents the spread of COVID. So nobody would get it. And there I am on the train this morning, and actually this morning about 50% of people had masks on. Lots of people didn't, including yours truly. The government wants to encourage people to wear face masks. So they could make it a law. And I think the vast majority of people would. There would be a few rebels, um, but some big fines would soon deal with that. Uh, so you could, in theory, use law for that purpose. But that is a sledgehammer, which in a civil democratic society will create en enormous problems. You cannot control everything by law. Does your paper argue any religion is more effective for social change? Uh, yes, uh, I would argue, well, I think all religions will bring some kind of social change, but I think a religion which is realistic about human sinfulness, realistic about the limitations of uh, human power, including government and clergy uh, and religious organizations. Yes, I think so. Um, that I would argue that what I would call biblical Christianity, which tries to balance freedom with communitarianism, with love, if you like, with uh, law, is, is pretty well as, as good as it gets, particularly the fact that the human heart needs changed. And uh, I think it's only Jesus Christ who actually does that. I would tend to argue that religion overall probably ends up doing more harm than good. Um, but that's, not everyone would agree with that. Um, I think religion is not the only vehicle to soften hearts. That would suggest no atheist is compassionate or moral in character. No, no. Um, that's to misunderstand what I'm saying and what the Bible is saying. All human beings are moral. That's why we're judged. We're not robots. We're not programmed. We're not automatons. Although if you are a materialist atheist, you have to believe that. You have to believe that ultimately no one is morally responsible. There's no logic for your view on morality, but the Christian view is everyone is moral. We're not saying that people are not moral. What we're saying here is we suppress the truth. We know, we know, but we suppress it. So you're watching this or you're listening to this and you're moral. So why then will this week you do and say something that is immoral? You never lie. You never boast. You never, of course we do. I do as well. So we need something deeper than just being, um, having some degree of compassion. Of course there's some degree of compassion in human beings. None of us are as bad as we could be. Or let me put it another way. None of us are as bad as we will be in hell, is how I would put it. Um, I love, you know, I used to have friends who'd say, ah, oh, Dave, you can go to heaven if you want. I'm going to go to hell to be with my mates. And we're going to have a great time. It's going to be a party. I'm saying, no, no, there's going to be nothing good there. Nothing good. And that's because any goodness will have been taken out of us. But right now, the question is correct. There is some goodness within us, but we suppress it. People don't like being called fools, even if they are. How do we persuade people that they need God? Uh, you probably don't go around and say, you fool. Um, although sometimes people do acknowledge, this is, I'm, very, I'm in a very foolish position. Uh, I'm, one of the things I would suggest is, I love, I love how C.S. Lewis describes this. He says, there's a child 
playing in this kind of rundown tenement building where all they've got is a mud bath outside their house. And that's all they know until one day they go to the beach and they discover sand and sun and water, even, even in Scotland or England, it is possible. And you don't know what you're missing sometimes until you see it. So um, I would say one of the best ways to persuade people of the need of God is two things. One is we do what Paul does here, show, which is incontrovertible, the mess that society is, and show the beauty of Christ and what could be. And then they have to work that through. Um, do you think God might be using coronavirus to show us we're not in control? If he is, it seems to me no one is listening. Well, whoever said that, brother or sister, amen. Uh, and if you're not a Christian, you should be because you're spot on. Uh, that is absolutely correct. I'm sure of that. I am sure. I don't think God kind of went, right, I'm going to send coronavirus to punish them because um, they weren't very nice or they elected Donald Trump or uh, they had same-sex marriage or whatever it is, the particular bugbears that people may have in mind. But I think there's a sense in which we live in a world which is filled with bacteria. And uh, I would argue that God is restraining lots of things. And maybe sometimes he just withdraws his hand a bit and says, get on with it and see what happens. And it's ironic that last year at this time, people were saying, we're gonna save the planet and we're gonna do this with the economy. And, and I was planning, oh, I'm gonna to go to my daughter's wedding. I'm gonna do it. I did not think that within a year's time, the old joke about Australia being a penal colony would come true. And I would now be in the one country apart from North Korea, which doesn't allow its citizens to leave. So if you've been reading the papers this week, um, it's just extraordinary. Or that all the world's economies would have been broke like that. It's just, it, it, it is extraordinary. And I think God is humbling us, except some of us are refusing to be humble. So uh, that's a whole bunch of questions online from you guys there. So thank you so much. Let me do some of the ones that came in here. Um, did Paul emphasize sexual sin to the Romans because Romans, especially under Augustus, had traditional morals? I think it depends what you mean by traditional morals. Um, there is a, a, an Oxford professor, oh, my mind's gone completely blank at the moment, who, uh, uh, Dermot McCulloch, that's who it is, brilliant historian, but he did a series on the BBC basically arguing that uh, before Christianity, but particularly Paul and Augustine, human beings lived in sexual bliss having sex with whoever they want, and, the thought, and Christianity came along and made sex a sin. Um, it's a bizarre view from someone who professes to be a Christian, actually, because the evidence is that at this time in particular, what might be called traditional morality included things like, um, if you were a male and you had female servants, you had the right to their bodies. They had no right to refuse. Same with actually women. Also, uh, and something that's what Paul is referring to here is the use of boys for sexual uh, favors, if you like. It, the, the, what was traditional morality here? The, even if you read Plato, for example, I'm, I'm astounded at some of the things that he says. I think Christianity brought in a non-traditional morality to Roman society, and that's why it was so challenging. And that's why, by the way, um, teaching what's here is so counter-cultural in our culture. Um, People yell at you for saying this kind of stuff because it's so countercultural. But what if it's true? Um, 
So Paul also mentions in verse 30, the sin of disobeying parents of the Roman traditional family and the power of the father and mother in the family. Yeah, I don't think it's just the Romans though. He's writing to Jews as well. The, the, the Roman church was split between Jewish Christians. In fact, one of the reasons for Romans is to try and bring unity between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, because there was some clash there. Lots of evidence of that. And I think uh, he, he's writing to both. And I think in every single culture, it is part of the inbuilt conscience that we owe something to our parents as well. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They become capable of believing in anything. And that is, of course, the wonderful G.K. Chesterton, uh, who was just like spot on. What's the difference between evil and sin? Uh, almost nothing. They're the same. I would argue that um, the one is the consequence of the other. We do evil. We, we have sin, which is rebellion against God. And as a result of that, we end up doing evil. But I would put them in the same uh, category. Which means fundamentally this. That's actually a profoundly disturbing thing. Because it means that if I acknowledge I've got sin in my heart, then the route from that to Auschwitz is not that long. And I remember one of the reasons I became a Christian was I couldn't understand why guards at Auschwitz could go home and play Mozart on the piano, even go to church, and then go back to their work the next day killing people. And it's the, it's just the depravity that exists within every human heart. Can't we get the true knowledge of God naturally without the Bible? Yes, but you won't. That's the point. Because the true knowledge of God, uh, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Yeah, you get that. So I mentioned before here that uh, I tried to be an atheist, but I couldn't because intellectually it was so daft. And that's because I could see the creation, and therefore there had to be a creator. I could see that there was morality, a moral law, therefore there had to be an absolute moral lawgiver. But I still didn't know who God was. That was a, uh, I, there were things I didn't want to acknowledge about myself and so on. And so, if you like, there are two revelations. There are revelations of the nature of God in nature. And then there's the revelation of God that's given to us in Jesus Christ, because human beings are now, by nature, opposed to God. And so we need something to break that. Um, that, by the way, is the foundation of all modern science. The Royal Society in the UK, which is the, uh, in London, which was the foundation of modern science, really, was almost entirely Puritan. And they believed in what they called the two books, the Book of Nature and the Book of Scripture. Okay, uh, one more, I think. Oh, I can't read that, so that's okay. Uh, Peter, have we got anything else, or is that? That's quite a lot of things. Um, I don't know if anyone, well, we're probably going to stop in one minute. If anyone else wants to add anything, feel free. Okay, so sorry, uh, speaking to you uh, who are watching this, it's a huge merit in this, and maybe I'll summarize by this. I, I regard this passage as phenomenally foundational in terms of understanding our modern world. I think that what's happened in the modern world is this. We are not progressing towards a secular nirvana, a glorious future free of religion. We never have done. We're going towards 1984 or Brave New World. But in reality, 
we are regressing to a Greco-Roman pagan view of the world. And that's why this passage reads as though it could have been written today, because it is so directly applicable to our culture. Please understand, I would say those to those of you who are Christians, this passage is not primarily about sex or sexuality. That's to read into it something from, uh, I, I think, our context. It is about what happens when human beings reject the law of God. And that includes degrading of our bodies in numerous sexual ways. Yes, that does include that. But it also includes so much more. And uh, I, I would suggest to you, that if you've got an open mind and you think about it, you would realize the truth of this passage and therefore you would need what comes afterwards. Okay, let's leave it there. Uh, well, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for all your questions. Uh, and thank you, David, for pouring out your heart like that. We can look forward to hearing David next week on Romans chapter two, the righteous judge. So please tune in same time next week. Thank you very much.